0: Welcome to the epidemic belfast podcast i'm eugenie scott a researcher in this project and a phd candidate at ulster university epidemic belfast is a public history and medical humanities initiative from ulster university it aims to map changing experience of infection and disease for individuals and communities in a unique urban environment belfast from the 19th century to the present day on today's podcast i'm interviewing dr ian miller who's currently a lecturer of history at ulster university we're going to be talking a bit about smallpox and anti-vaxxers. So welcome Ian, thank you for joining us today to chat a bit about this really interesting topic. Thank you. Um, can I just start by asking you who was Robert Strain and why was he in disagreement with the Board of Guardians?
1: That's an interesting question, thank you. In 1881 uh, this Belfast man, Thomas Strain, did um, get into a a major disagreement with the board of guardians who were the group responsible at the time for overseeing the poor law and the workhouse but they also took on a lot of medical responsibilities throughout the 19th century in 1864 the guardians had been tasked with vaccinating infants and children against smallpox the government had made vaccination compulsory but this was really controversial and certainly thomas strain here was adamant that, that his child would not be jabbed without his permission He believed that enforced vaccination infringed upon basic civil rights and dangerously violated children's bodies with animal matter. So we can see here a kind of Victorian example of many of the debates which are playing out today, but in a very different context. Thomas had the support of the United Kingdom's anti-vaccination movement, which one historian Nadia Durbach has described as the largest medical resistance campaign ever mounted in Europe at the time. So we've got this interesting situation where the medical profession is becoming much more sophisticated and modern, but there's all this resistance, particularly amongst working class communities who were still quite distrustful in many instances towards the middle class medical profession. This movement distrusted the government's capacity to enforce medical interventions quite literally into the bodies of citizens. And working class children in particular seemed vulnerable to infection and even so this row persisted for months the london society for the abolition of compulsory vaccination had its own newspaper the vaccination Inquirer. in october 1881 thomas appeared in court for, for a fifth time for refusing to have his child vaccinated the vaccination acts in place allowed for repeated prosecutions and fines so you could end up before the courts and for as many times as the the guardians decided to prosecute you uh, and you can do that until you earn out money if you can't pay your fines then the family's possessions could be seized and if you reached a stage where there was no more possessions to be taken away from your home the father could be sent to prison for two weeks and that period of imprisonment could repeat itself um so obviously you needed to be a very stubborn kind of anti-vaccineer and to continue with that. Uh, But Strain was determined to keep paying fines for as long as he could afford them and even face prison rather than have his child vaccinated. The Vaccination inquirer commented, whoever can afford to pay the fine can laugh at the law. And when some guardians know they have a resolute antagonist to deal with, they judiciously let him alone. However, the guardians didn't leave Thomas alone. Uh, And presumably he had enough money behind him to, to keep on going through this process. The frustrated guardians asked the local government board for advice and they were advised to carry on prosecuting indefinitely and the guardians instructed their solicitor to go at Mr. Strain as often as possible, every week if it could be managed. But eventually in December 1881, a judge named Mr. McClelland finally ended the matter by dismissing the guardians' case. So Thomas proved victorious in the end.
0: Given that Robert seemed unconcerned about his child contracting smallpox, was the disease not very harmful or severe?
1: Well, smallpox was very severe, so we may interpret Thomas's refusal to vaccinate his own child as odd and even negligence given smallpox's severity. In Belfast, serious outbreaks had occurred in 1864-5, 1870-3 and 1877-8. The symptoms included fever, mouth sores, skin rashes, and the rashes rapidly spread across the body, often in less than a day. The skin sores were filled with a thick liquid. Death was likely And those who survived often lived the rest of their lives with disfiguring scars. So you might ask, well, why would someone like Thomas um, want his child exposed to this? As well, Belfast was, of course, a port, which meant his residents were exposed potentially to pathogens brought in from around the world. An 1870 to one occurrence was blamed on individuals who had travelled in from Glasgow, Liverpool and Dublin. In 1883, a steamer arrived at Belfast port and deported a man riddled with smallpox and then scarpered back out to sea. So those kind of things were going on as well, but customs authorities gradually made more thorough checks before letting ships on board their passengers. Smallpox was highly contagious too, as well as being deadly. Anyone caring for an infected person risked falling ill themselves. So in 1870, a boy who we know as Mr. Workman or master workman, I guess, arrived from Glasgow bringing smallpox with him. He was treated by a practitioner from Belfast, Dr. Beck, but then the doctor contracted the illness, and then he infected his family members, and then two of them died. So we can see here even doctors are very exposed to to the ravages of smallpox. Once an outbreak had been brought to the attention of public health officials, there was very intrusive interventions imposed, usually, Patients might be transported to the hospital, even the the dreaded workhouse hospital with force if necessary. The clothes were burnt and the homes fumigated, disinfected and boarded up. So this undoubtedly helped stem the spread of smallpox, but many saw this as unacceptable medical intrusiveness.
0: So how and when did smallpox vaccines develop and why were the Victorian anti-vaxxers so opposed to them?
1: Well, given all the problems surrounding smallpox, you might have expected the vaccines to have been welcomed fondly. Uh, and there, there was two different things in inoculation and vaccination, which are slightly different in nature. Uh, back in 1796, an English doctor, Edward Jenner, noticed that milkmaids who contracted cowpox were immunologically protected from smallpox. In 1801, he announced to the world his development of an effective vaccine. Under the 1864 Vaccination Act, poor law guardians in Ireland became legally responsible for ensuring that all infants were jabbed. As I mentioned, just smallpox was now the only infection with an effective medical intervention, which partly explains the, the government's enthusiasm for making sure that everyone got a vaccine. But despite being aware of the dangers of smallpox and its threat to children's lives, many parents, again, including Thomas Strain, viewed the vaccine suspiciously. Partly, this was because in Victorian times, vaccination involved cutting lines into the flesh of children with the lancets, which often led permanent scars. So by our standards, Victorian vaccination equipment was relatively crude. And at the time, vaccination safety and effectiveness was much debated. And indeed, the safety standards, which we expect today, weren't quite in place in this period. Uh, Vaccinators expected children to return eight days after their initial vaccination to have fresh lymph harvested from the blisters or vesicles, a procedure which many parents viewed as grotesque. And, of course, many working-class children were young and undernourished, so they were at higher risk of having negative and sometimes fatal reactions to the vaccine, some contracted blood-borne diseases. And as Nadia back the historian, writes, this invasive insanity and disfiguring procedure seem to many to be potentially more harmful than beneficial. So you have this situation unfolding whereby some parents are convinced that the cure is worse than the disease and would choose to maybe expose themselves and their families to smallpox rather than get themselves vaccinated. So, so I have a few examples. In 1864, the workers at the Old Park Print works in North Belfast agreed to be vaccinated. But they said, well, we'll only get ourselves vaccinated if smallpox comes along to Belfast and begins to spread in the locality. Smallpox did arrive and the workers, for the most part, did make good on their promise. And then only five cases broke out at the print works. But in an adjoining street presumably populated by the unvaccinated the epidemic hit quite severely so there was proof here that vaccination could clearly work there was further evidence from the hospitals too at the belfast fever hospital it was compulsory for doctors nurses and attendants to be vaccinated and also regularly revaccinated as well so there was an awareness that vaccines didn't always last forever so it wasn't just that you went through this procedure at once but you may and choose to do it various times. And particularly if you are today, I guess we would call a key worker. And these key workers enjoy clear immunity, despite being constantly exposed to smallpox pathogens. There was three public health officials who got themselves infected, but all of these had refused vaccination. So it's even, you can see there within the public health system itself, there's some skepticism towards vaccination, but even still vaccination remained distrusted.
0: Was the opposition to vaccination much stronger in Belfast than the rest of the country?
1: Well, many historians have commented, uh, particularly recently as well, on relatively high uptake of vaccination in 19th century Ireland, certainly compared to Britain, which had a much more organised anti-vaccination movement and a multitude of stubborn conscientious objectors, as they were known. However, opposition in Belfast seems to have been stronger than other parts of Ireland and in some ways more in line with opposition in in other urban centers across the United Kingdom. In 1870, one local doctor described Belfast as one of the worst vaccinated communities in Ireland. And in the same year, the Dublin-based newspaper, the Freeman's Journal, remarked, when we consider how beneficially the enforcement of the compulsory vaccination act has worked in all other parts of the country, it's not credible to the authorities of the Irish Athens that there alone its sanitary provisions have been neglected. And that's such an important town could be in a dangerous sanitary position. Some contemporary reports claim that vaccination was just being carelessly managed in Belfast, but many local doctors disagreed with that. There were some statistical investigations made um, which suggested maybe in Belfast that support for vaccination wasn't universal by any means but that perhaps anti-vaccination sentiment wasn't as pronounced as feared. So in 1872, the guardians asked the mill and factory owners across the city to check how many of the female workers had been vaccinated. And he could easily find this out just by looking at people's arms. of course, it turned out that many of these women had, had made fake scars on their arms. So the arms were investigated quite closely. But after all of that was done, it only turned out that 666 out of a total of 12,413 women were unvaccinated. So that's roughly around half, people, half of these women were vaccinated and half weren't. Um, there is anecdotal information which sheds a bit more light on the reasons why people may have chosen not to get themselves vaccinated. Uh, Evidence and prosecution suggests that most parents believe that they knew of someone who had been harmed by vaccination. So there's all sorts of rumours going around the city about a Belfast child who had needed a bone removed from her finger, uh, and about deaths and and severe disfigurement as well. There was also the problem of pushy, insistent vaccinators, and, and even the judges tended to view them quite negatively. So in 1900, a Belfast man, Alex Houston, prosecuted a vaccinator named Dr Fulton. Alex, like Thomas Strain before him, didn't want his newborn child vaccinated. The child has been delicate and weak since birth. And that was the rationale behind that decision. But Alex went out to work one day and Dr Fulton arrived at the house and threatened Houston's wife with a fine and then vaccinated the child without the parents' consent. Um, The court ruled in favour of the parents, ordered the doctor to pay 20 shillings as well as the legal cost to the I think this complex case reveals that parents weren't just irrational, anti-scientific, anti-vaxxers. Well, at least in the Victorian period, they had meaningful reasons to object to compulsory medical intervention. And high amongst their concerns was the paternalistic, intrusive ways in which some doctors sometimes went about imposing a highly sensitive medical intervention in working class households.
0: Thank you. Um, That was really interesting. Thank you for coming along to talk today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode, as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com.